And a real thank you to Dr. Pettit for the opportunity to minister today. And I really was thrilled to hear Dr. Olala's message this morning and to be following it. It seems like I'm always following him. And I'm so grateful for the fact that I've had the privilege of doing that at our church. The Lord brought him and his wife to the life of that church after its founder, Dr. Rod Bell, left. And it was a very critical time in the life of our assembly. And I'm sure if the Olalas had not been there and carried it the way they did, that I probably would not be pastoring that church today and probably would not be standing here today. And I also was very glad to learn how to really compute the joys of marriage from him, 108 years, 54 years for each of them. So I got to thinking about that, and that means that my wife and I have been married for 84 years. It's really wonderful. And you know, this morning I received a little email from one of the young girls in our church, the youngest daughter of Dr. David Boyd, who's on our science faculty here, and she wished me a happy Valentine's Day. And I realized to my horror (laughs) that I had not even thought of it being Valentine's Day. And then I meant, when I left the house about 45 minutes ago, to wish my wife happy Valentine's Day, and I forgot. And uh, she would be here. She had some surgery a few weeks ago, and she's still not at the place where she can really sit for long in a hard chair. So she's at home watching this on live stream. So, honey, happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) And I really appreciate you still loving me after all these years. So, enjoy. It's a blessing, blessing to get to do that. She, she graduated in the first class to have its commencement in this building. And somehow I and a few other fellows got tapped to carry the flags. I was a year behind her. And so uh, my first real experience in this building like that of really honoring her was uh, carrying the flag at her commencement right up this center aisle. So I'm really glad to be able to add to that today, 84 years into our marriage. (laughs) This subject, of course, that we're dealing with could not be any more vital to the interest of any one of us. And I would like today to use two passages of Scripture to help us with this, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New Testament. I'd like to invite you to turn, first of all, to the 119th Psalm. We're going to be here just momentarily and then go to the New Testament passage. One of the things, just to set the stage, that nearly everyone who addresses this subject is challenged by is the question of how to identify what we're thinking about. What is revival? And what makes it challenging is that the word revival does not occur in our English Bibles. 
You will not find it in your King James Version or the New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version. The word revive does not occur in the New Testament of any of those translations. It doesn't mean that it's not a biblical phenomenon, but the word isn't used. And what you always find yourself wishing for when you're addressing something is for the Bible itself to be describing what you're attempting to teach or preach about. In this case, however, the word revive does occur in the Old Testament in the New American Standard translation of that testament. And this passage, the chapter in which it occurs more often than any other chapter in the Old Testament, is the 119th Psalm. It occurs there 11 times, either as revive or revived. And what that means, of course, is that if a person is studying the issue of personal revival, the 119th Psalm is the passage. And I want to show you just three of those references so that we can get a little bit of a feel for what the psalmist is crying out for the Lord to do. The first time that it occurs is in the 25th verse. You would just glance at it. You're not going to see the word revive if you're looking at a King James Version, of course, but you'll see the equivalent in the Elizabethan language. Look at the 25th verse. Here's the complaint, the complaint of a man who has determined that he wants to walk the way of God's Word. He commits himself to that in the second stanza of this psalm. But very quickly, he's frustrated. And so he describes himself as having a soul that cleaves to the dust. And his plea then is, quicken. There's the King James word for it. Quicken thou me according to thy word. Look at the 37th verse. Here's a second illustration. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Excuse me, verse 37. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. He's aware of the fact that his eyes are continually seduced by all the wrong things. Turn my eyes away, and what I desperately need is for you to quicken me in your way. And one other illustration of this in the 50th verse. This is my comfort in my affliction, that thy word hath quickened me. Now you can see then that the word that is translated revive in the New American Standard Bible is translated here quicken. And if you're looking at an English Standard Version, it is translated to be alive or to give life. And this is true in all 11 instances in the 119th Psalm. Wherever you see the word revive or revive in the New American Standard, or the word quicken or to give life in your ESV, it is the same Hebrew word. And I want to talk just momentarily about that word, not to be technical, but because I feel like this really helps to open our conception. It certainly did mine. The Hebrew word is a verb, and Hebrew verbs 
occur in seven different what they call themes or stems. In every one of these 11 occurrences, the stem or the theme of the Hebrew verb is the same. It's called a piel, P-I-E-L. And when a verb like this occurs in that stem, what it's referring to is that the state or the activity of the verb is being, this is the important thing, caused. So, for instance, to illustrate, if the Hebrew word is be sick, but it occurs in the Piel theme, it's make sick. Cause the sickness is the verb. Or if the verb is to be holy and it occurs in the PL theme, then the meaning would be to what? Make holy. Now this particular verb is the Hebrew word kaya, which means to be alive. And that is why a word like quicken in your King James Version, is so expressive. Because obviously, this believer who is devout and is committed is crying out to the Lord for an enhancing, an enlarging, an animating of the life that he does have, but that as yet is not vibrant enough in his own experience to carry him forward to the heights to which he desires to attain. Quicken me. Give me life, the ESV is saying. It's really a marvelous conception. And it, what it does, folks, is it grounds us scripturally in a right conception then of exactly what it means to be revived. It means to be quickened in this sense. And, of course, Dr. Olala this morning referred to the fact that for there to be a reviving, there has to be, as he put it, there has to be vive. And what he was pointing out, of course, is that if you call on the Lord for revival, there is implicit in that the understanding that life does already exist. But there needs to be an animation of it. It's not vigorous enough. Now, because, just a little, little bit more platform here before we move to the New Testament, because the Scripture teaches us that the member of the Godhead whose ministry it is to give life, either in regeneration, John chapter 3, or in the enlarging and empowering of existing life, because the Scripture teaches us that the member of the Godhead who does that is the Holy Spirit. All through church history, it has been the Holy Spirit whom God's people have recognized to be the one upon whom they are dependent for this quickening 
And last night in our service, Dr. Pettit took us to the second chapter of Acts and very carefully laid the foundation for that in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ in that event. And then subsequently to that, every time you have the filling of God's people or the enlarging of God's people, every time you have that, it is the Holy Spirit doing what was first done in New Testament times at the day of Pentecost. So you always have this. Now, with that background and that understanding, I'd like to ask us this morning or this afternoon now to turn to a passage in the New Testament that could not be more perfect for helping us to understand the heart of this. I mean, what is really at the nucleus of this when a church, not just an individual, like in the 119th Psalm, but when a whole church is directed to this by God's Spirit. The passage that I'd like to refer us to is in the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation, and it is the last of the letters that were directed to seven literal churches that existed in that day in Western Asia Minor in what is today the modern country of Turkey. I'd like to refer you to the third chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. And the passage that we're going to give some attention to is recorded for us in verses 14 through 22 in our Bibles. We're going to read it in just a moment, but I want to set us up for it. I made the statement that there could not be a more perfect passage for understanding the application of the whole concept of what revival is to a church, that there couldn't be a more perfect passage than the one we're going to look at. And I want to give you some confirmations of that. In other words, this isn't just a passage that we could have chosen out of everything in the Bible. This is really one of the passages. One reason for that is because the passage is addressed to an actual church that is made up of professing Christian people. And beyond their just being merely professing Christian people, it's evident that Jesus Christ regards them as Christians. And he says to them in the 19th verse, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Chastening is something that Hebrews 12 denies God's doing to the lost. Chastening is something that God does for his children. Now, that's not to say, of course, that in that local assembly there may not have been some lost people, just as there are lost people in nearly all of our churches. But in general, the Lord is speaking to this church as being exactly what they regard themselves to be, and that is truly regenerated people with life. The second reason that this passage is so abundantly helpful for us is because we know a little bit about the background of this particular church. 
That isn't true of all of the churches to which these letters are addressed. We have, as you know, seven of these letters in chapters 2 and 3, and the only two that are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament are the church at Ephesus, to whom the first letter is written, and this church. The other references to this church are in the book of Colossians. We're not going to turn there, but I want real quickly to give you the essence of it. Paul says in the second chapter of that letter, in the first verse, that this is a church over whom, I'm going to give you the word, our our English word for it, but the, the Greek word is nearly exactly the same, over which Paul says he agonized. And he describes the fact that he does this because he is so desirous of their being perfected. And then he refers in the fourth chapter, the last chapter of that letter, to the fact that their minister, we would probably say their senior minister, who's mentioned in the first chapter as well, a man named Epaphras, he says that Epaphras, who evidently is visiting Paul when Paul writes this letter, he says Epaphras just, and he uses the same Greek verb, he agonizes for you in prayer, that you would stand fast and be perfected. So you've got an apostle and a very faithful pastor, and their intent is the same, and they're both highly exercised in their own spirits over the perfection of this church. And the other detail that is very interesting is that in that fourth chapter, Paul says to the Colossians who are going to get this letter, he says to them, I want you to read the letter that I wrote to the church at Laodicea. Now, everybody would like to know what that letter was. Some people think it's the letter that in our Bibles is addressed to the Ephesians. I don't think that's the case. It seems to be a letter like many letters that Paul would have written that were not included in the canon of Scripture. Paul had written them a letter, and he says to the Colossians, I want you to read the letter I wrote to the Laodiceans, and I want you to be sure that the Laodiceans read this letter. So, you know, folks, it's a little hard to really evaluate anybody, myself, yourself, little hard to evaluate anybody or an institution or a church or a mission board, anything, unless you know something about where it used to be. In other words, you've got, you have to have a point of reference. You've got to have a benchmark. And in this case, we have a little bit of a window into a benchmark for them, that they were the objects of some very unusual, privileged, pastoral, and apostolic care. Now, by the time we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, about 30 to 35 years had elapsed. It'd be roughly like our saying, okay, what was my home church like about 1985? Maybe that's when some of your parents were, the, were, were part of the charter membership of a church that was begun then. Or maybe there are men in this room who have been pastoring your particular assembly that long. What was it like in 1985? Well, obviously, your heart for it and the Lord's heart for it would be that looking back, if that's the point of reference, that what you see now is just a tremendous advance Well, let's read this letter then and see what it looks like a generation later. Let's start our reading. We'll read carefully. 
verse 14. Under the angel, that's the human pastor. These letters are not written to heavenly beings. The word angel is a word that is used occasionally in the New Testament, like it was used for John the Baptist, for a spokesman from God. Under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Now, folks, this letter is perfect for a consideration of the subject because it is written to an actual local church who has been in existence now at least a generation, was very privileged at its founding and its subsequent growth. But now, 30 to 35 years later, this is Christ's own assessment of it. They are alive, but what they need is to be revived. So what's really important for us, I think, is two things. Number one, to give attention to the issue of the condition that cries for a reviving. How would you really know? Because, folks, what's apparent from this letter is these people don't know. Jesus actually said it to them. You don't know what my viewpoint is. Their estimation of themselves is much different than his. So what does he say about their condition that helps us? And what's interesting about it is the way he summarizes it. He summarizes it in terms of the matter of their temperature. And you know, of course, that the word that he uses in verse 16 is the word lukewarm. 
And we all understand when the Lord says then, because you're this way, I will spew you out of my mouth. We've all probably had that experience and done something like that. It's a hot day. You go over to the garden hose, turn the thing on, run it for 60 seconds, put it to your lips, spit it back out. Or maybe you've done that with a cup of coffee. You've sat it down. It's been there for 5, 10, 15 minutes. You pick it up, make a face, dump it down the drain. It's not hot or cold. It's tepid. It's lukewarm. And we understand the Lord's response to that. That is, He responds emphatically and dramatically, and this is unpleasant to Him. It isn't really that He's being savage and severe in His language. Put yourself in this place, you understand. But, folks, the question is, here's the important thing. To what is he referring when he says, you are lukewarm? What specifically is he taking the temperature of? We might think to ourselves, well, maybe they're spirit. They're not fervent. Or maybe they're theology. It's not sound. But look at what he says. Look right at the words of verse 15. What are the first four words of verse 15? I know thy what? Your works. That's what he was assessing. Their works. Their activities. And every one of the letters begins that way with our Lord saying that about them, that he is talking in terms of their works. Now, the thing that is helpful for us about this, and remember what we're trying to do, we're trying to get a feel for how would you know when you need reviving? If you're talking about a church, it might be a matter of its temperature. If you ask, what are you talking about? The answer might come back from the Lord. Look at its works. Now, when you say that, it's obvious then that there is something going on. There is activity. They do have the works. And what's interesting about this particular letter, by contrast with some of the other letters, is that the Lord does not lay his finger specifically on anything that is missing in their activity. Some of the other letters he speaks to churches, and there are defects in the sense that there are absences. That isn't the case in this particular assembly, evidently. In other words, they have the full range of structure and activities and ministry that goes on. Ministry, they could check that off. Services, they could check that off. Outreach, they could check that off. We preach, we teach, we sing, we pray, check, check. The works are there. But what the Lord is evidently saying is none of them are notable. In no case do they stand out. It's like something that is clearly lukewarm. Not energetic, they've got the works, not energetic, not vigorous, not athletic. Okay? Now, that is a condition. What the Lord is doing is describing them in terms of his assessment of their condition. If you look at their activities, that's a condition. And certainly, when you have revival, 
the most notable, notable thing, the thing that is just most conspicuous, is the new activity. There's just really almost a geyser-like outburst of activity, particularly in confession of sin, prayer, and evangelism. But conditions have roots. And of course, when you're thinking about revival and desiring it and analyzing whether it's taking place in a church or in a conference like our conference this week, your temptation is to assess things in terms of whether or not there is a new flurry of activity. And I think both Dr. Pettit and Dr. Olala have referred to the fact that you cannot measure revival that way. That is not where to start in your assessment of whether it's happening. You can't measure it by excitement. You've got to look at the roots to find out if the apparent new conditions are genuine or whether somebody has just been beating up a storm of excitement. So right through church history, this has always been a difficult thing for men who are truly and earnestly intent on revival. It's been a difficult thing for them to assess. And when Jonathan Edwards wrote his initial works about what was happening in New England, what he was trying to do is present evidences that the apparent outburst of activity was genuine at the root. And so he's giving case studies in what happened to particular individuals. And what he wrote was read by ministers and Christian people throughout New England, made its way to England and to Scotland, was greatly used to inspire people there. This is in the 18th century, 1700s. But I'm giving that example to make this point, folks, that if you're wondering about yourself, what would it be if I really was a revived individual? You can count on it. There would be an increase and a heightening in the temperature that you know, in your works, but that in itself does not necessarily evidence that your root was touched. If your root is, the activity will be there. But activity can be there without there being genuine revival. That's the point. So again, how would you know? I mean, let's go a little deeper with that. And I think that you come to understand something about working your way right down to the heart of things if you will look at their own self-assessment in verse 17 and then how the Lord responds to that. You say, he says... You say, I am. And when you look at the way they describe themselves, just, um, just want to spend a moment here. It's very interesting that the language that they use is really in terms of the culture in which they lived. They refer to themselves as rich, increased in goods. When you listen to the Lord's critique of them, he talks about the fact that they need clothing, that they need eye salve, 
And all of that was something that these people would have identified with because Laodicea was the banking and financial center of their district. It was also known for a garment industry because in that area there were sheep with a distinctively soft black wool that was highly desired. And Laodicea was also the home of a medical school that had developed a compound for the treatment of eye diseases. It was called Phrygian powder. And the language you have there reflects all of this. It's the Lord essentially using analogies. You say, and remember, these people, are just, in their view, what the Lord is doing, he's quoting them, and, the, and in their view, this is the way they would describe their spiritual condition. We're rich, and we don't need anything. And that's what is at the heart of their self-assessment, isn't it? It's the matter of feeling we have it all. We're rich, we're increased, we're well-dressed, we can see, and they're describing their spiritual condition. And our Lord comes back and says to them, you don't know, you can't see, and you are poor and wretched and naked, and you don't know it. You know, the frightening thing about that is how far apart a church's actual condition can be from its own estimation of itself. Huge distance. I mean, poles apart. If you said to these people in this church, I want to talk to you about your temperature would you describe yourself as cold or hot or somewhere in between? Luke, how would you describe yourself? Well, folks, how would they have described themselves? These are people who say, we've got it all. We can see everything. We're well clubbed. Obviously, they would have said, what would they have said? Would they have said we're cold? Would they have said we're lukewarm? No, they would have said what? They would have described themselves as hot. They would have said, you know, we would say things like, a lot of energy around here. Man, our church is really booming. A lot going on. You just feel it in the atmosphere, electric. How far apart our own assessments can be from the actual condition. It's really a remarkable thing, isn't it? You, you sometimes wonder... How is it that we are so blind to ourselves? You take a man, give you an illustration, like John Newton, who, of course, wrote Amazing Grace and a number of other numbers that we have in our hymn books. John Newton, you know, before his conversion, was in the slave trade. He experiences a dramatic conversion, and I mean it was real, and his life changed. But do you know he stayed in the slave trade for six years after his conversion? And he actually captained a slave ship. And he is not lukewarm in his spirit. You read his journals from that period of time, and he's locking himself away in the captain's berth 
hours a day to study the Bible intensively and to pray. And he's writing in his journal about his prayer life and his love for God. And right underneath his feet, you know, I don't know what the distance was that far, 10 feet under him, are hundreds of human beings chained to the lower decks. And he doesn't really see any contradiction. And he said later in his life, when he was asked about this, some nine years after he finally got out of the slave trade, he said, you know, it was the most disagreeable business to me, but I, he says, I looked at it as my calling. And when he was questioned more closely about that, he said, custom, that is, I was used to it. And example, that is, a lot of other people did it, seemed like everybody did it. And interest, by which he meant profit. I've got to make a living. This is a trade. A lot of other people do it. It's what I'm used to. He said custom, example, and interest had blinded my eyes. And that's true right through the history of the church. It's really what explains sometimes how churches and individuals can be in a condition that actually, if their eyes were open, is so contradictory to their Bible. You can't find that in your Bible. And yet, we describe ourselves as these Laodiceans would have described themselves. Now, folks, it's imperative then, you know, I don't know any other way to put this, it's imperative just to let the Lord tell the truth about us. And you've got to really believe in your heart, like I do every time I open my Bible, you've got to believe in your heart that the Bible is right. It's no exaggeration. And that's obviously why this letter begins the way it does. We read the words in verse 14, but why does the Lord begin this particular letter with these words, I am the faithful and true witness. If someone comes to our churches, like we had a man come to our church several years ago, and I'm not saying this to tout our church, it just was remarkable to me. This man had come out of a number of other Christian churches over a period of time, not churches that are in fundamentalism, broader evangelicalism. He sat in our services with his wife for quite a number of months, and one day we had a church picnic, and I sat down on the edge of a sandbox with him and talked with him. And he said to me with real earnestness, he said, you know, I cannot figure this church out. He said, I've been reading things in my Bible all these years and just saying to myself, nobody could live that way. So he said, I just dismiss the, all the hard things I just dismiss. I say, you can't live in a culture like this, like that. And then he said, I come to this church and find out people are doing it. He says, it just totally confuses me. And folks, I knew exactly what he was talking about, don't you? 
it is the thing of letting Christ actually define what it's supposed to be like and telling us what we actually are. And he gives some counsel, and I want to move us to this secondly and lastly, in verses 18 through 20, that is just profound. And you know, it's been there all along, and we just, our our tendency is somehow, we just miss it. I guess our eyes aren't open, maybe. Look at verse 18. I counsel you. Lord, what do you counsel me? Look at the exact words. To buy of me. Look at verse 20. I stand at the door. Open the door. I stand at the door. Open the door to me. You can summarize his counsel to Christian people, to churches, who are possessors of life and who do have activity and a structure and a local presence, and yet they aren't what they ought to be, you can summarize his counsel of them, folks, this way. He is the counsel. It's not just that he's giving the counsel, he's the content of the counsel. It's come straight to me. Get it from me. Open the door to me. He is the counsel. You'll know, I'll know when we're really living at an animated, enlarged, empowered, and filled level because we're, hate to use a word like this, we'll understand it, we're Christocentric again. It's what he was calling for when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. You left your first love. And it's the same thing here. The counsel is Christ himself all the way through. That is the distilled essence of it. I'm a Christian, and I'm in need, and I sense it. What's the answer? Christ. Our church, I just feel like it's simmering. Things are kind of on the back burner. What do we need? The answer is go straight back to the Lord. It isn't a new program, though programs can be helpful. It isn't a new initiative. It isn't a new building program to get everybody excited and digging into their pockets and giving it. That isn't it. It's Christ. He's the center of it all. He has everything we need. The answer in every case, folks, where there is disappointment and where there is defeat and where the fires are burning low, in every case it is. It's got to be Christ again. We've got to go back to the Lord. If I go back about 30 years in my own life, I had just left the full-time Bible faculty here, and I was pastoring the church that I'm pastoring now. My wife and I had moved off campus. We'd lived here on campus for nine years, a very sheltered and comfortable, desirable, and privileged situation, living behind the gates and right here with, surrounded by good, dear Christian friends, many of whom are still our close friends today. And 
I was in the beginning of senior pastoring this ministry and able to preach and teach every week to the people and really fascinated with the Bible and understanding more and more of it. And the previous senior pastor, whose associate I had been for nine years, a man on our Bible faculty, a very venerated man on our Bible faculty, Mr. Jesse Boyd, the grandfather of Dr. David Boyd on our science faculty. Um, He had had to leave the senior pastor of our church. He had contracted Lou Gehrig's disease. And so he couldn't get up in the alumni building to the office that he used to have, so they put him down on the ground floor uh, of the offices. And because I was part-time now, they put me in the same office with him. He was in a wheelchair. Students would go over in the mornings and help him get dressed and put him in his wheelchair, and the university would send a van over, and the students would lift him up in the van and bring him over. They'd get him out of the van, lift him up on the little platform in the classes. That's where he taught right up to the last week of his life. And we were very near the end of that time, though neither of us knew it. One day I was in the little office there, and I was getting ready to leave. He swung his wheelchair around, and he just looked at me very kindly. And he said, Mark, I pray for you. He said, I pray that you will fall in love with Jesus. And I was so embarrassed that I could not get out of that office fast enough. Because what was apparent to me is that after our working together like a father and son now for over 10 years, that he was aware of a real defect in me. And that was his gracious way of saying, I'm praying about what I sense you still need. You've got all this education, and you've had all of this privilege to teach here. You have this church. But there's a need in your life. And I can tell you that today, these many years later, that I am not anywhere near where I need to be or want to be in the remedying of that defect. But I can say that I know from experience what it is to really love the Lord. And folks, it is not something you do to yourself. It is something that gets done to you when you open your heart to it. And typically the opening of your heart occurs because you get so absolutely desperate you can hardly get up off the floor in the morning. And finally, it's like, I cannot do this another day without Christ. And all along, you thought you were doing it with Christ. But folks, we just don't know, do we? I mean, we really, it's what Jesus said to this church. You, you really, your eyes are not opened. You really don't know. And what you find out about the most spiritually minded people in church history is those people never say, 
We don't need anything. The most spiritually minded people in church history, when you read their journals, whether it's John Newton or Cotton Mather or Thomas Shepard or Matthew Henry's sister Sarah Savage or Robert Murray McShane or the Bonar brothers, in their journals they are bemoaning what they feel is their poverty before God and they're the most spiritually minded people on the planet. And that's what happens when the Lord really gets in close to you. I mean, it's like Peter in the boat when the Lord fills his boat with fish and he's down on his face and it's, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It's like John in Revelation when he sees the glorified Christ. He falls down like a dead man. Folks, these people are not just posturing. They're not doing this for effect. This isn't something that was scripted. It's just... They're absolutely smitten with the huge distance between the Lord and themselves. And that's what happens. And you know, we can describe that a little bit to each other. We can talk about it like I'm talking about it right now. But there's absolutely no way of parsing it for someone else. When the Bible comes, it just says, look... I, you know, not going to give you a formula for this. It isn't like 15 things. You put the 15 things together and all of a sudden you've got it. Closeness to Christ. And this is how it feels. The Bible just comes to you and says, I'm going to tell you what. If you ever experience it, it's sweeter than honey. And you wouldn't take a bag of gold for it. You would not take money for it. When it happens, you want to throw the windows up and shout, Hallelujah! You wouldn't take anything for the experience of Christ close in your soul. And dear people, that is the soul-satisfying fruit of real revival. It's what verse 20 is talking about when the Lord says, If you open your heart, I will come down I will come in and I will sit down and eat with you. You don't want to pass that language over. In the culture of the day and in your Bible, that describes the closest possible communion. Those people reclined when they ate. They were so close in that that like at the Last Supper, John is leaning back on the Lord. They ate out of a common plate with washed hands. They're all sharing from the same plate. I mean, you are in close in that culture when you're eating together like that. That's why when the Lord ate with publicans and sinners, the the critics said, he's a friend of those people. That's exactly right in that culture and in the Bible presentation of it. And when the Lord promises that, he's just saying to you, That fellowship is going to be so close. It's just you and me. It's one on one. It's like that close, face to face. And I will do that for you if you open the door. And folks, it isn't, listen, it isn't that you've got to agonize for it all night long. Our prayers, somebody has said it already, that that our prayers are, that you know, all the prayer is basically to get us where we need to be. 
But it isn't that Jesus, that the Lord is hesitant about this. It isn't that he's standing at some great distance and he's saying, you know, once you rack up enough time, then I'll come in. He says, I'm right there at the door. In fact, I'm not standing there inactive. I am knocking on your door. The difficult part is opening. It's a real struggle to open. And I think we all know that there are times when, honestly, before God, we are just like the psalmist that we read. It's like I am absolutely cleaving to the dust. You are going to have to revive me. And I think always when I think about that concept of old F.B. Meyer, some of you may have some of his books. Many of them are still in print today. Went to be with the Lord in the 1920s. Friend of D.L. Moody, great preacher at conferences both in this country and on the other side of the Atlantic, his home country of Britain. And F.B. Meyer tells of the time when the big change came in his life. He records it. Very, Meyer was an absolutely transparent guy. And he said he's pastoring this large church, which he did pastor a large church, and he had in some young men. One of them was C.T. Studd, pioneer missionary later to Africa. But these were young guys from Cambridge. They were students at Cambridge. C.T. Studd was one of the most proclaimed athletes of his day in Britain. And they'd all gotten a really good dose of salvation and decided, phooey on all of that, we're going to serve the Lord and go into foreign missions. And it just made national news. I mean, the newspapers were full of it. and every, you know, There were all kinds of people that wanted them for meetings, so they traveled around Britain before they went off to the field and told their testimonies of how God had finally gotten a hold of their hearts and all the things that they thought were important no longer are important. And Meyer has them in for a meeting. And one night after one of the meetings, he said to C.T. Studd, Charlie Studd, he said, Young man, what do you have that I don't have? And as you can well imagine, this student was embarrassed that this older, famous pastor was asking him what he had that Meyer didn't have. And he didn't know how to answer, and finally he just kind of stammered out. He said, I, I don't know, Mr. Meyer, have you given everything to God? And Meyer said he winced. He, Meyer, winced. Because he knew he hadn't given everything to God. And he said most of the time he could overlook it and he didn't have to think about it except when he officiated at the Lord's table and that it was always right there. And he tells of determining that night that he was somehow going to wrestle that out with the Lord and the way that he described it, I'll give it in his words, he's on his knees in his room, and it's like the door opens, and the Lord walks in and comes over to him and points down into his lap and says, Meyer, what's that in your lap? And Meyer looked down, and it was this whole ring of keys. He said, well, Lord, those are the keys to my life. The Lord said, I'd like to have those keys. Meyer said, Lord, you've always had them. And he gave the Lord the whole ring of keys. The Lord hardly even looked at the ring. He looked back at Meyer and said, What's that? And Meyer looked down, and it was a little key he'd never put on the ring. 
And folks, I want to pause for a moment. You and I can think to ourselves that one thing doesn't matter. You've got to remember our whole flesh entrenches itself in the one thing. It often isn't the thing, it's that our whole flesh barricaded itself right there. It's like the Lord said to the rich young ruler, you lack one thing. And Meyer said when the Lord pointed at that key, he instinctively clutched it. And the Lord said, I'd like to have that key too. And Meyer said no. And he said, the Lord tossed the whole ring of keys back and said something like this, if I don't have them all, I don't have you at all. And God does bring you to a crisis like that. He puts up with a lot, folks, because sanctification is progression. But there are times in the life of a church or an individual when the Lord comes and he puts his finger on the thing that is the problem. And he really means business at that moment. And Meyer recognized he was in the crisis of his life. And he sat there and struggled and finally, in an agony, admitted to himself that he was not capable of releasing his fingers. And there are things like that in our lives. The roots go so deep and the tentacles are so pervasive, it's like it's the whole chemistry of my life to be selfish like this or stubborn like this, or lazy like this, or filled with lust like this, or willful like this. And sometimes you have to do what Meyer did. Meyer finally cried out and said, Lord, I can't give it, but I would be willing for you to take it. And he said, that's all the Lord needed. The Lord came over. He's got omnipotent hands, and he just pried his fingers apart, and he took the key. Folks, don't let that illustration bother you. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. God gets his way either way. You say, I'll give it, or you say, Lord, this is beyond me. You're going to have to take it, but I'm willing for you to take it. He got your will. That is what he wanted. He wanted your will. And Meyer said in his case, after about two weeks, he didn't even miss it. Folks, real revival will be when we allow the Lord to get in close. That is intimacy. That's the nucleus. And once that happens, there is a kind of a critical mass that takes place. And then you can have the bursting out of all the works, all the activities. And they come in their time and at his will. Inevitably they come because Christ really is at the center. Let's bow for prayer. I just wonder this afternoon, 
if you might be prepared to really face this. That you are a believer, you know you're regenerated, but you need, you need to be revived. Now, all of us need to do better all the time. I'm not asking who in here needs to do better. I'm really asking of folks, and you know, if you accept the Lord's own assessment that that you have been running, your temperature's been running real low, and that really the heart of the matter is that you don't have the closeness to Christ that is required to be warm and fervent and deeply interested in spiritual things and in love with your Bible. And God's been using this conference. He laid the foundation last night. The message this morning was so warm and appealing. And we've got the Lord's own analysis here for us. Would you, would you be willing now to just open the door? And you know, you well know, that if you do that, you can't hide anything from him, that he gets to look at and deal with everything. And as far as you're concerned, it's okay. It actually is what you've been hungering for for so long And you just feel so relieved to finally recognize it. And by God's grace, you're just going to open the door. And I want to ask if you would right there in your seat right now, just tell the Lord that. Not going to give any other kind of invitation than that. Just right there in your seat. In the quietness, would you just say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I I really have been so distant from you and your spirit is speaking to me about that he's glorifying you to me right now I know you are all I need and I don't want anything between you and my soul so Lord please come in and please take away what is wrong and sordid and unclean and unworthy, and I want you to do that. Just do that right now. Pray to the Lord right now like that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you our hearts. We come to the mercy seat just as we are with all of our fightings and fears and sinfulness. And we plead with you to give us access. And we pray that in coming right through the veil to your Son, that we would find that in him we have everything. Lord, do that for people here this afternoon who stand in great need and perhaps some of them at a point of real crisis in their lives. 
And we will thank you for what you do. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.